You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. We take so much for granted. That hot water will come out of the faucet, that electricity will magically appear in our walls, that planes will stay up in the sky, and that we all have the right to have a say in how we are governed by being allowed to vote. But as the civil rights activist, educator and journalist Ida B. Wells said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. A quote which seems just as salient today as it did 100 years ago. On today's show, we're going to be looking at two new works, a new play by Dr. Cheryl Black called Votes for Women, which commemorates the ratification of the 19th Amendment 100 years ago this year. And in the second act of the show, the author Fong Gwyn will be stopping by the studio to talk about his latest novel, Roundabout, which the book cover describes as a slapstick meta-romp through art, literature, metaphysics and modern America, all written without a single letter E. But first, this year we commemorate a landmark achievement in the rights for women. The day in 1920 when the state of Tennessee became the critical 36th state to vote in favour of the 19th Amendment, thus signing into law that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. A new play by Dr. Cheryl Black, Professor of Theatre History, Dramaturgy and Acting at the University of Missouri, called Votes for Women, opens on March the 11th and explores the history of women's suffrage. From Abigail Adams' first plea to her husband, John, to remember the ladies and be more generous and favourable to them than your ancestors, through to the great marches of the 19-teens and the many women who were jailed and tortured for the cause. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. This is a pretty monumental work covering a packed 150 years of history. Yes. How long have least. you been working on we this actually, We actually take it through Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight movement. Okay. So it, it, it starts in 1776, as you mentioned, with Abigail Adams and never ends. No. <laughs> and we do, we have that quote by Ida B. Wells. It's a fantastic quote. I, I looked it up yeah. online and then went and read the whole quote. <laughs> yes, yes. She's a character in, in the play and, and we do have her saying that. So how long have you been working her. on this? Well, the idea began to percolate about a year ago, last spring, when I was thinking uh, this might be a good idea to do something that did commemorate the, this uh, amazing centennial. And I thought of this play. There is a play that I know that I like very much called Votes for Women by Elizabeth Robbins. It's from 1907. But it is the English story. It's about the suffragettes in England. But that is, that's where we started. And I thought I could adapt it and make it an American story and uh, fairly simply and set it in Washington, D.C., perhaps, around 1913, something like that. But the more I delved into the history of America's suffrage movement, it just kept spreading in all directions. And I thought, oh gosh, I can't, I, I, 
I just can't do this. I mean, her play, it, it is quite a wonderful play that I highly recommend, but it's a very tightly structured, well, what we call a well-made play. It's one story. It's a few characters. It's kind of centered around one event. Um, so this, this, my idea just became really more a pageant than a play. And uh, I was most inspired, and I guess what I owe still most to Elizabeth Robbins is her second act, in which which portrays a suffrage rally. And even though hers is fiction, and she has no real characters from history, um, it's it's a very realistic look at what a suffrage rally was like, and the speakers and the hecklers and the posters and the banners. And, and so I became more interested in doing something like that and and drawing from the actual theatrical performances that the suffragists did along the way, that the movement itself was highly theatrical, and they, from conventions, um, from... We sort of leap from Abigail Adams' letter, which John Adams did, in fact, ignore. Uh, <laughs> uh, we leap forward quite a bit into the mid-19th century when we have Seneca Falls and, and those landmark events when women began holding conventions. But that was very theatrical, too, and the speeches and manifestos that were read and uh, a lot of uh, heckling, a lot of drama in in those events. And then protest the sort of um well women who like susan b anthony who voted and and sojourner truth tried to and they were arrested uh sojourner truth was just turned away from some polling place but susan b anthony was arrested and tried so uh, one of our vignettes is her trial so what what we've got uh which people will come see hopefully is kind of like a scrapbook, a, a dramatized scrapbook of images and events from the history. That's a great description of it. I mean, you very kindly sent me the play to read. I mean, and I didn't see the link really with Elizabeth Robin's book because I'd read that it's play too. It's pretty tenuous. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> and you say it's adapted from that, but yours is really this romp through history. It is. Of, you know, of all of these, like it you say, is. these vignettes and these scrapbook very, parts. And very fast paced. <laughs> and as I, I, I right, and I, I feel. Uh, why I try to really explain to people because I still feel indebted to her for the idea and yet it we definitely uh, veered significantly from <laughs> from her play. Well I mean hers is a work of fiction. So it's is a not work of really fact. an adaptation right. of her play. That's yeah. that's a stretch. But I agree people should you know read it. It'd be great to see that play performed. I would love to do it. This and year. it's it's just the American story has more resonance here. So different, right? Yeah. It's so multi-leveled. I mean, uh, and and in England, or at least from Robin's play, the issues were it was focused on gender, but class was quite a major issue. And in America, it's race, right? And and our story became so much about the intersection of the suffrage movement with civil rights movements related to racial oppression and discrimination and beginning with the abolition movement which was so tightly wound in right that that in a sense abolition was a major impetus for the desire to vote because women or the desire for women's rights in a broader sense of women being heard because so many women were in the abolition movement and they couldn't do anything because they didn't have any political power mm. and they couldn't even speak in public or that was that was a problem they were turned away from meetings and couldn't get a voice 
So they sort of realize, hey, we need to, okay, we're not going to be able to change much in society if we are, remain disenfranchised. So that, yeah, that was such a big part of it and remained such a big part of it all the way through the Civil War and post-war and in well into the 20th century and, and on. Yeah, and I don't think I had fully appreciated before the initial strong alliance between the abolitionists and the suffragists mm-hmm. and how that ultimately splintered mm-hmm. and the Equal Rights Association mm-hmm. just kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. In the play, you have Susan B. Anthony talking about how there can never be true peace in all in this republic until the civil and political rights of all citizens of African descent and all women are practically established. Mm-hmm. And then you have the civil rights activist Frances Harper saying, you white women mm-hmm. speak here of rights, I speak of wrongs. Mm-hmm. If there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and mm-hmm. selfishness, mm-hmm. it is the white women of mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about that and that split. And they both want the same similar thing. They all want enfranchisement, but somebody has to go first. And, and then gender comes up against race. And, and the white women in the movement... Or, or some white women in the movement just did not get that. So it, it, was, it was sort of heartbreaking, really. And yet it was, I thought, very important to try to show this. And there's Susan B. Anthony is just one in, a woman. Um, and, of course, she's a landmark figure. And she, she is an extremely notable figure in the movement whose views on race and her views on this this sort of priority of civil rights for African-Americans and women's rights came into clash in her own mind. And so she made statements like the one you just read, really wanting both of those things to happen. But then she said later something like, I will cut off my right arm before I see an African-American man get his rights before I get mine. I'm paraphrasing horribly. <laughs> but, well, and her, and her uh, thought but, was that if yeah. African-American men get the vote, those women are still subjugated. They're right. still, they still right. have no voice. And so that you need to raise women up at the same time. And so it became quite, quite a contentious issue. And, um, and she, she had scenes with Frederick Douglass as well as Frances Harper and others. And it's so complex relationships and, and the splintering and dissension heartbreaking because it it's amazing even now in the 21st century to think about how strong the alliance was and and how what potential that mm. had for justice and equality in America and then when race hit gender mm. uh, and uh, the some of the white women leadership in the movement just couldn't see it that's that was that was sad and a few did. Um, and like you say, in the UK, gender hit class. Right. So we had right. issues, right. different issues, but right. similarly intractable. And, and class is inextricably bound up in, in the American story, too, and, and yet not in quite the same way or, or, or with quite the kind of same, uh, well, that race is such a powerful right. uh, aspect of that that seemed missing in in England at that time in the early 20th century. Many of the women that we meet in the play are familiar names. Susan mm-hmm. B. Anthony, I think everybody probably knows her name. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm curious from your research who you feel has been overlooked by history and who deserves greater recognition for their role in women's suffrage. Well, I, I think 
most of the African-American women leaders are overlooked. And even though their names, for, for some people, a name like Sojourner Truth or Ida B. Wells uh, are pretty well known, but I think there's still a lot of people that do not know who those women were. And Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who, who really seemed to me a remarkable figure in history and, and a woman of great wisdom and insight and fortitude and not so well known, I think. Uh, and the, the Fortin family of African-American women, the, the mother and her three daughters who were abolitionists and who became such leaders in the suffrage movement. But there are a lot of working class women too, I think, and that story is probably less well known in America. Um, recent immigrant women, and there are a couple in the play, a few people, uh, Ruza Winkloska, uh, also known as Rose Winslow at some point, and she, she's a fascinating character to me, a working class, um, I think first generation Polish-American uh, woman, working class woman, got very involved in the arts in, uh, in Greenwich Village in the teens, was a member of the Provincetown Players which is uh, one of the most famous of American art little experimental theaters in that era of uh, anti-commercial movement. They're the company. They're famous for discovering Eugene O'Neill, first producing him, and Susan Glasswell, first producing her. And, and she worked for them. They were also quite political for their day. And uh, a lot of their members were involved in labor movements and suffrage movements, feminist movements. And she was one of those. Rose Schneiderman is another woman, similar background, working class, quite a few working class women who were, who were important and probably less well known. The Susan B. Anthony's and the Elizabeth Cady Stanton's, they were fairly privileged. Even Alice Paul, later on, who can, uh, Carrie Chapman Catt, they had the leisure to do this mm -hmm. and and to be out in the streets and organizing suffrage pageants and things and working class women were working 10 12 hours a day and this the story that you tell is all at a national level as you said earlier off air that you know each state had so many women fighting fighting right. for their rights too that's and that yes and and they've been neglected by history or to a greater extent the history does tend to focus and and the play does as well on the national battle. There's a little bit of info about states like Missouri. And a story I did not know and was absolutely fascinated to discover was that uh, a Missouri woman, a St. Louis woman, Virginia Minor, was, uh, she was the first to sue the um, county clerk or the, uh, the state office of Missouri for refusing to let her register to vote. And she, it went to the Supreme Court. It went to the state Supreme Court of Missouri first and then the National Supreme Court and lost on all levels. But still, that was that was a you know, quite quite an event and did not know about it. And and with so much history to cover, so many events that you can put in, how on earth did you decide which events would make the cuts? Oh gosh. Well, that was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I that was really tough. And I and I had to do it pretty quickly. Because I, my then the script I decided to do it sort of late spring. I mean we are and, and the university our department said okay, in late spring and I was working on a book at the time which I had to devote most of my summer to, because that was due like September first and then this was due October first, so 
it was it was a cram cram course and very quick decisions sort of done in late summer and I still I'm sure and I have in my director's notes in the program I said I apologize in advance because the heroes heroines and villains of this story are legion and there is no way I'm, I'm sure I left out someone you consider crucial and I can only apologize and hope that what we what we show people which really are selected snapshots and so I did rely on a lot of the secondary sources that are out there who have pre sort of pre-curated for me um, so it's it's the, to that extent already curated and then some things that were particularly interesting to me I think I was very familiar with these the theatricality of the movement so I was drawn to parades <laughs> and and conventions and then plays there were plays that that were suffrage plays or anti-suffrage plays so I drew from those and and I did I wanted to I definitely wanted to tell the story about race so I made a conscious effort to to do extra research on african-american women and men that were supportive of and in opposition to the suffrage movement and to let their voices be heard men like kelly miller who was dean of howard university and he was anti-suffrage and debated in the pages of crisis magazine with debbie b du bois who was a major spokesperson for the African-American community in the early 20th century, and he was very much pro-suffrage. So I, those, were, those were some of my choices. And, and I, I did want an aesthetic and entertaining quality in this, and so I looked for humorous things, which there are lots of. Uh, humor was a weapon that, that both sides wielded as well. So there are the satires and the parodies that are almost like SNL sketches where these women are making fun of all the legislators that are saying these ridiculous things and um, creating their parodies of anti-suffrage attitudes and songs. Music was, of course, huge uh, with, with the parades and conventions that they, they took popular tunes, like anthems like Battle Hymn of the Republic or America the Beautiful and others, and, and created new words and made them anthems, made them suffrage anthems. So we have four of those that the ensemble sings. And there's, I think, may, at the moment anyway, my, one of my favorites of these is there, there's a song called Woody Wood, which is uh, mocking Woodrow Wilson. And the women who were arrested for picketing the White House in uh, 1917 during World War I, or we had just gotten involved with World War I, and they were picketing the White House and, and demanding of Woodrow Wilson, how long must American women wait? How about a little democracy at home, you know, as you fight for it elsewhere? And they were arrested. Quite a few women were arrested and imprisoned. This is the, hor you know, the horrible torture stories of being force-fed and all of that uh, kind of thing. And Alice Paul was practically shoved into an insane asylum. They tried to play that card for, well, she's crazy. And mm -hmm. we, it was frighteningly easy in those days. A couple of doctors could get almost anybody put away like that and, and certainly silenced. But anyway, the, so the women, uh, according to one woman's account, uh, this woman who wrote a book called Jail for Freedom, which is a firsthand account of all that, when they were in their cells, they were isolated, and they started making up a song called Woody Wood. 
and it was set to the a popular tune called Captain Kid, which I never heard of, but now I know and love. Uh, and they would sing. So like one woman would start this, and she would make up a verse. It's this mocking Woodrow Wilson. Uh, oh, we worried Woody Wood as we stood, as we stood. And uh, and someone else then would hear her. So they did this to raise their spirits, and it would go from cell to cell. And they just made up hundreds of verses of this song. One of the things you bring up in the play is, which again I didn't know, is that in the election of 1912, it was Teddy Roosevelt, traditionally a Republican, Mm -hmm. who was pro-women getting the vote. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. it was the Democrats Mm -hmm. who held the most traditional attitude to Mm -hmm. women's suffrage, and it was Mm -hmm. their nominee, Woodrow Wilson, who won the presidency. Mm -hmm. Did support for women's suffrage cross party lines? Well, the interesting thing there is how, when you think about what we think of as a general Republican Party platform today is almost 180 degrees from what it was then. And and the same with the Democratic Party, that it was um, the Republicans, that this was still sort of the Lincoln Republican Party, who had been progressive in the areas of women's rights and civil rights, and the Democrats were were the more conservative and anti-suffrage and anti-civil rights so it was it was almost and this is this is an interesting thing i think somebody in my cast has suggested we need like footnotes for <laughs> to explain to the audience right. that when when someone's introduced as a republican and a democrat in this play it, it's almost exactly the opposite evocation that right. those terms would have today uh, 1912 was one of the most progressive election years in American history, not only because Theodore Roosevelt created his own progressive Bull Moose Party, and more, even more progressive than the Republican Party, which was the progressive party at the time, uh, and his former Vice President Taft was running on that ticket. But Eugene V. Debs was a socialist. Hello, Bernie. <laughs> Are you listening? Uh, he was not even, he did not even call himself a socialist Democrat or democratic socialist. He was a socialist, and he garnered a million votes. And that in 1912 in America. So it was an interest. That was a very interesting year, and it was and suffrage for women was at the forefront, uh, or one of the issues at the forefront for sure in that year. You're working with Professor Mimi Hedges as mm-hmm. your scenic designer. Mm-hmm, Tell mm-hmm. me just quickly before we end a little bit about your director's concept for the production, because you're talking about pageants and conferences, right. which are great, but I mean those yeah. are kind of. <laughs> Stage. I, I know my my design team. Oh my goodness! <laughs> just they all deserve gold medals right now. Um, so my my concept was that that this was like a pageant. That it was not realistic. It was it was going to be overtly theatrical. There were there are eighteen people in the cast, and they're yeah, and they are working as storytellers, telling the story. And then when needed, they become characters, or they become they become the characters in a play. They do a scene, or they become lawyers and doctors and they become politicians so almost everybody in the cast is four or five or six different characters and and everything happens rapidly so everything the the scenic design and the costume design has to accommodate that uh, and it was it's just quite a challenge uh, and Mimi's so Mimi's concept for that is to 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 give us a, an environment that's that's fairly minimal in the sense of decor and, and realistic furnishings, but but very much evoking realistic um, locations like it's it's wooden, 
and it evokes a convention hall or it evokes a courtroom. It might evoke the interior of a church. It evokes, I think, to some degree, an earlier era. And um, there are several levels and podium, lectern, so giving, giving us the ability to suggest all those different locations without a lot of terrific detail. And you have historic uh, costume too. Were those all designed or did you borrow and, those? And, and costumes too are suggestive rather than particularly realistic. And, and I realize I just used the word terrific, meaning extensive, because the costumes also we are not, they can't be terribly realistic. They can't have detail, so they're suggesting. So uh, there is, uh, and Mark Vital is the costume designer. He's so imaginative and, and, He's fabulous. and creative. Mm-hmm. And yes, and we worked together uh, a couple of years ago on Father Comes Home from the Wars, which uh, he did such a beautiful job with, and, and he's doing the same sort of ability to imagine and create and suggest without a lot of detail. Uh, so every every member of the ensemble has a, an essential costume that is suggestive uh, and, and kind of removed from a specific time and place, but evocative uh, of somewhere that is not now if that makes sense. And then they just, to change characters, it could be as simple as a hat or a jacket or a shawl or or a pair of eyeglasses or some little distinctive touch that says, okay, now I'm Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Well, it it is a great lesson in the history of women's suffrage in America. I'm excited (laughs) to see it. My first act guest today has been University of Missouri Professor of Theatre History, Dramaturgy and Acting, Dr. Cheryl Black. Her original production, Votes for Women, a commemoration of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, opens on Wednesday, March the 11th and runs through the 15th at the Rheinsberger Theatre. Tickets are $17, which you can buy in advance from the box office or by calling 573-882-PLAY that's 573-882-7529 or you can just go to theatre.missouri.edu and theatre is spelled R-E the English way Mm -hmm. and get tickets there thank you so much Cheryl thank you thank you you're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia and after a short break I'll be chatting with author Fong Gwyn about his new book entitled Roundabout find out what a lipogrammatic work is after the break I had no idea it was even a thing back in a mo. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. I quite often learn things on this show that I had previously no idea about. And lipograms were one such thing. So what are they? A lipogram is a form of constrained writing where the writer omits a particular letter or letters, like writing a poem without the letter A or a book without the letter E. A palindrome would be another kind of constraint writing, like, you know, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, which reads the same forwards and backwards. And although I had never heard of lipograms until my second guest today, Fong Gwyn, launched his new novel, Roundabout, just a few weeks ago, lipogrammatic writing is nothing new. The Greek poet Trithiodorus is said to have written a 24-book epic poem in the 4th century in which each book was missing a letter of the alphabet. 18th century German romantic poet Gottlob Berman was said to so dislike the letter R that not only did it not appear in any of his 130 works, but he also wouldn't speak it and even refused to say his own surname because it has an R in it. 
All of which brings us to the latest lipogrammatic work in this unusual canon. Roundabout, written by Fong Gwyn, is a 300-page novel in which the letter E does not appear. As vowels go, E is probably the hardest to avoid as it is used five times more than any other vowel. Remove the letter E and you have almost no pronouns, no past tense, no definite article and not that many numbers. Why would any writer put themselves through that? Well, luckily, Fong Gwyn, the University of Missouri's Miller Endowed Chair of Writing and Creative Writing Director, is here to explain all about his new novel. Good day, Fong. I'm happy and curious to chat with you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my one lipogram homage <laughs> sentence right. in the whole interview. It's very difficult to speak in lipograms, I'll say, <laughs> and I'm not going to try to do that today. <laughs> so obvious first question, why yeah. would you want to do this? Uh, well, it's not because I hate the letter E. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with the letter E. Um, in fact, you know, it's in I've your written, name. Yeah, I've written my name. I've written four other books with the letter E. So um, this one, um, you know, constraint writing in general can be very liberating if you preoccupy the conscious mind with avoidance of a certain letter then it gives free reign to the unconscious to explore its own prerogatives. And so um, the subtitle of Roundabout is an improvisational fiction. So it was written in the spirit of yes and, in the, in the spirit of the, the rule of improv, in which I entertained all of the ideas that would bubble up from my subconscious and would um, take suggestions and incorporate them into the book. So the most obvious constraint is that it is a lipogram. It's written without the letter E, but it's also metafictional. Uh, it's a story in which the character becomes self-aware of himself as a character within a story. And it also has a variety of other smaller constraints as well. Were there any suggestions that people made that you just said, no, no, can't do that? Was it, were you true to yes and all the way through? Yeah, so the suggestions were less in the spirit of like a dare. They weren't like, you know, people saying, I dare you to do this, dare you to do that. It was more, they would, somebody would say, um, oh, this reminds, this character reminds me of Don Quixote, and I would have to make some kind of reference to Don Quixote without the letter E in the book. And, um, uh, and th that's really more what I took as a suggestion is people saying there are certain things that it reminded them of or that arose in the story. Some of the more specific constraints were that uh, somebody uh, said that it should be written in the, the first, second, and third person voice and written in the past, present, and future tense. And uh, it actually turned out to make sense within the context of the novel. The first part and part two are written in the, the past tense in the third person voice, just telling the story of Ovid. And then when he becomes self-aware and then the author declares uh, himself, then it becomes a first person present tense narrative. And then after there's a trial in the story in which um, Ovid is accused of anticipatory plagiarism, um, which is, you know, the, what the actual Olipo accused Borges of is anticipating and then writing books that they couldn't then not write because he'd already written them. Then the author tells the reader what their role is in the story, which is to serve as a jury and to condemn Ovid. And so it's written in the second person future tense. So it does make sense within the context of the story. But that was one of the constraints that I introduced pretty early on. 
But what was the chicken and egg in that situation? Did you decide that you were going to have these three components, past, future, uh, mm-hmm. and or the, third, the three yeah, voices yeah. and present tense? Or was it a dare that you then took on? Like, uh, did, did you write the novel to accommodate the dare? Or mm-hmm. were those components already there and then <laughs> the yeah. dare built into that? Um, so I, I, because the first, I had already started to write it in the third person past tense, um, when it was introduced, maybe it should also be written in the, the future and the present tense, and it should also be written in the second person voice and the third, first person voice, then it made sense, given what I knew was coming next, to shift into those modes. Um, so yeah, it, it was, you know, uh, first part and part two are written in the third person uh, past tense and were always written in the, the third person past tense. And then when I got that suggestion, I decided at that point to incorporate them in the later books. Yeah. I mean, how do you go about avoiding the letter E? I mean, because it's just right there under your finger the whole time. Well, in, in my case, I actually removed the letter E from the laptop that I was working on. And uh, so every time my finger would automatically go to the letter E when I try to write, you know, the or I try to write a past tense verb with with an ED, then I would be reminded uh, physically, almost like a little electric shock or something, you know. And then, of course, once the book was done, there's quite a bit of editing involved and in, in going through it uh, many, many a times. So if somehow a letter E had crept in, it was gone by the end. But yeah. did one creep in? I mean, it couldn't really creep in if you couldn't hit the well, key. Well, so what happens in, in this particular laptop, I don't know if this is the case with all laptops, but there's the key, and then when you remove the key, you can still, if you press it hard enough, there's like a little nub that's left over, you know? So I guess if, if I was really kind of, you know, deep in flow and I accidentally pressed that nub without noticing that it was a missing key, then uh, I could go back and uh, correct it. I did notice that at one point you use the word gray, which of yes. course spelled American way is okay, but if you That's were spelling right. it in English, English, it wouldn't be okay. And then yeah. blonde yeah, was the other yeah. one that I noticed where he had blonde hair without an E. Right. So it, they have to be translated <laughs> into British English, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, that's actually, I think the British spelling of gray is, is more and more and more common in American writing, especially you know amongst my students. I noticed that there's something about the appearance of the E in the letter gray, which gives it um, a little bit more, I don't know, magical feel or something like that. I guess 50 shades of gray might have helped. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to write this book? Was this something you just sat down and read as a stream of consciousness or was it many years in the making? It was many years in the making. I actually started it a long time ago, about 15 years ago. Um, and the reason that I wrote it when I did is I was aware that 2006 was the last year that I could make reference to until 2030 without the letter E. And so I wrote it in, you know, around that range, 2005, 2006. And as a first draft, it's very different. Um, I've changed it quite a bit since then, but the first draft was written in a period of about two years, regularly meeting with a group of fellow writers who also had writing projects that were ongoing, and uh, they made suggestions, and and that's sort of uh, where I got the improvisational aspect of it. Yeah. Writing without an E, I mean, lipogrammatic writing, as I said earlier, is it yeah. goes back you know yeah. many centuries. Is writing without an E the most common letter to omit because it's the hardest to omit? Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, most well-known lipogram is 
the French book Disparation by Georges Perec, and uh, that's written without the letter E and translated without the letter E, which must have been quite a feat to do. And then Ernest Vincent Wright's book Gadsby, not Gatsby, but Gadsby is written without the letter E. Um, so I, I think it is the challenge. It is, you know, if you omit a letter that's not that common, like X, you know, it's not that much of a constraint, so it's not going to benefit you in the way that the constraint writing is meant to benefit you as a writer. And you're not going to be preoccupied with thinking about avoidance the way that you are when you have a difficult constraint. It seems like writing a book or writing for even for writers is a struggle. Yes. Sitting down, writing every day, being disciplined. And that by adding constraints, you're making the struggle even more profound. Is is struggle part of the process for you? Well, that's interesting. I mean, you'd think it would make it more difficult. It's slower, certainly. I don't know if it makes it more difficult because there's a way in which writing with a constraint is a shortcut to flow, you know, that that flow state in which the subconscious takes over and you feel like you're channeling a work rather than just consciously, you know, typing out uh, letters and words. And so, you know, it's, it's easier to get into that flow state, I feel, when you have a constraint that preoccupies your conscious mind. So it, in, in some ways, it was not as difficult to write as uh, some of my other works. I mean, obviously, it, it it took many years for me to feel like it was finally finished. But that first draft, I mean, you know, I have a, a book that I recently finished that, that took me, you know, four years to write a draft of. So, you know, that's um, for different reasons. But yeah, so I don't know if it's more challenging to write without the letter E, actually, except that it may not be for everyone, you know. Um, so, you know, one of the things I did to kind of train my mind to to move around letters uh, more fluidly was play word games, you know, like Boggle and Scrabble and things like that. And, you know, removing the letter E and then just thinking about putting words together. Um, and an important thing with a lipogram is that you have a range, you know, re repetition is easy if you're using some kind of constraint. But if you have a broad range of vocabulary that you're utilizing, um, I tried to use every, you know, word, phrase, quote that I could without the letter E. And it turns out there are a lot of, you know, quotes that are unconsciously written without the letter E. So, you know, I, I call it a, a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, right? And that's, of course, a quote from Shakespeare, except he calls it a tale, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there is uh, the ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country is a quote uh, that's uh, given in the book as well. So these... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the range was really important and the ability to draw upon a range of vocabulary and a range of uh, sources. Now, if you're writing in a flow state, mm -hmm. some writers seem to plan meticulously what's going to happen to their characters and other writers are mm -hmm. surprised by where their characters take them. If yeah. you're writing in a flow state, did you know when you first wrote Ovid yeah, yeah. where he was going? 
I had a general idea. So Questlove in the book Creative Quest writes about roll with it spontaneity and then planners, you know, that what you're talking right. about. And he says that most of us are kind of a little of both. And I find that to be the case with me in that I have a general sense of where things are going, but I'm surprised along the way many times by directions that the story takes and choices that the characters make and and so on. Um, the difference here is that as a metafiction, I'm drawing attention to those things and making the reader aware of those things as in the later books, the author asserts himself. Yeah. And did the author or Ovid to you as a writer feel who was in control? Because the author is a character too, even yeah, though the author right. is yeah. kind of you. <laughs> right, right. Well, so yeah, the author, the the revelation. I don't think I'll be spoiling much by saying at the end, his revelation is that he's actually a narrator and not an author. Right, <laughs> that he thought he was an author, and then he has an author as well. So as far as who was in control. I would say it's a little of column A, a little of column B, right? That that Ovid uh, made choices that surprised me along the way, but that the author asserted control over him and uh, drew attention to those moments in the story. So yeah, a little of both. Well, let's have you read a little bit from the book. This is from part two. They're not called chapters, because obviously that would have an E in it. Right. <laughs> so go ahead and read um, sure. part two. As a young man, Ovid was worldly and ambitious. Growing up in Britain, flying all around Asia in his youth to India, Thailand, and Hong Kong, and abruptly moving to Boston to study at Harvard as a young child was jarring. Finally graduating at half, halfway to 30, as old as his own son was now, Ovid was a young man, lacking in maturity, but full of can-do spirit. Ovid had a missionary's conviction that his calling was to do good in this world. To this day, Ovid is naturally both a scholar and incurably romantic. This background did allow Ovid to stick his foot into so many doors of so many corporations, including an illustrious publishing outfit, Olipocor. Olipocor had grown so big that it now had not only a books division, but a film studio, two TV stations, a radio station, a shopping mall, a toy factory, a hospital wing, an industrial manufacturing plant, a political lobbying association, a third world colony, and a black ops organization with platoons as far as away as Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and all stands. Ovid had no inkling of what Olipokor's grand mission was, or that Olipokor was actually a think tank that had grown so big that it built its own think army, and now was a rival not just to corporations, but nations too. In its vast, sprawling, clumsy lack of focus, Olipokor was a good match for Ovid's awkward fumbling toward glory through any kind of art. Though what was disappointing to Ovid as a young man was which door his foot got stuck in, that of Olipokor's accounting division. <laughs> Ovid soon found that moving out of accounting and into divisions such as publishing or film or radio was a virtual impossibility. But a good salary, a good location, and an inclination toward comfort brought about Ovid's gradual submission to his lot. His initial rank at Olipo Corps was that of an assistant accountant's accounting assistant, though Ovid was not an accountant by training. Ovid had a skill for monotony, to truck through day by day in a world of doldrums without complaint. His boss was constantly applauding his ability to sit still and go through a particularly humdrum day uncomplainingly. That Ovid knows how to sit still, his monthly job appraisal might say. Or Ovid Deland can crunch data all day without falling unconscious. If Olipocor would only host its own Olympics, giving out awards for a just-sitting-around marathon or a working-all-day dash, Ovid would win so much gold that it would crush him. 
All of it had to do was wait, and soon his status as assistant accountant's accounting assistant would turn into assistant accountant's assistant accountant, which may not sound as though it is an indication of upward mobility, but what you think about it did switch his primary noun from assistant to accountant. This, in Ovid's world, was a significant triumph. His job was a titanic ship about to lift anchor and sail. Ovid had to work all day in a gray, monotonous, soul-killing building, sixth floor, room 636, a big cubicle auditorium full of dividing walls forming small cubicle work units. His was an industrial building, all plastic, glass, and iron. All in all, Ovid and Olipocor got along swimmingly. But on his down days, idly passing hour upon hour, shuffling and filing and computing, Ovid thought of running away. Ovid was not without his days of dissipation. For a short month, you know which month I'm talking about, that particularly short month following January and prior to March, Ovid was put in a city jail for crashing his truck into a cop car. If it didn't occur in Wisconsin, Ovid's public intoxication and drunk driving would warrant a stint in prison but Wisconsin's liquor lobby had cut away for so long at its drunk driving laws that you couldn't punish a man too harshly for anything to do with alcohol. A car crash was as common a sight on its highways as a billboard. As an accountant and as a whitish-collar criminal, Ovid got out of prison while still awaiting trial, making bond, and thinking that prison was now a thing of the distant past. But prison would stay in back of Ovid's mind as an historical low point in his adulthood, a dark past that would put a blight on all his days. Look at Ovid's mugshot now. A gigantic cranium, ovoid, oblong, skin busy with pockmarks. Ovid's look is a cross of all kinds of looks, uncomfortably hybrid, as though a photo caught him in mid-morph. Bushy brows with thin tails, dark pupils with bright umbra, giant flaring nostrils and a small flat lump of skin. Top lip broad, bottom lip narrow, dark brown hair with natural blonde highlights, a light dusting of salt. His jowls sagged down slightly as wrinkly as a scrotum hanging from his chin. Ovid's shadow cast an amorphous blob, globular, a snowman walking in slow motion. A bit of a skinflint, Ovid is thrifty to a fault. His motto is, if I don't got it, I don't want it. And this philosophy spans all sorts of things, from cars to clothing to food to prophylactics. Thank you, Fong Gwyn. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with author Fong Gwyn about his new novel, Roundabout, a lipogrammatic novel written without the letter E. Part two that you just read introduces us to Olipocor, Ovid's mm. employer, and I knew it was a reference that I wasn't getting. I kept mm. saying it over and over to see if there was a clever hidden right, reference right. in how you said it. But then I read about the author Georges Perec that you mentioned earlier, who is another lipogrammatic writer, and suddenly it became clear. So tell us who the real Olipocor is. Sure. Uh, the uh, Olipo. Yeah, rather. the Olipo <laughs> is uh, short for the Ouvroir de Literature Potentielle, and it was a group of writers in Paris during the 1960s that would meet together and write experimental fiction and poetry. And it consisted of a number of members, mostly French, but there were, you know, Georges Perec and Raymond Cano. And uh, Marcel Duchamp was, um, you know, a member briefly. And um, in an Italian, uh, Italo Calvino was a member of that group and the American Harry Matthews. So it was kind of an international movement, but it was one to restore a sense of playfulness to literature and to writing and to do these highly experimental and difficult things. And so some of Calvino's famous works come out of that. And uh, of course, Perex and Cano's. 
The New York Times described Olipo as a group of deliriously brilliant mathematicians, theorists and writers devoted to extraordinary linguistic experiments designed to test the limits of received aesthetics and to drive traditional critics and readers to drink. Right. <laughs> that's a much better explanation than I just gave. That's great. And because I suddenly yeah. knew who Olipo oh, was, I picked up another reference to a writer who, for, as you mentioned, who for many years was the only American member of Olipo, Harry Matthews and you yes. have Harry Math yes, in your book and his right. wife Polymath. I got the Polymath. Yeah, link. yeah. And he he is fascinating. He said that he qualified unwittingly for the group after he rewrote Keats's poem La Belle Dame Sans Mercy by using the vocabulary from a Julia Child recipe <laughs> for a cauliflower dish. <laughs> And vice versa, which I tried to read online and it's almost incomprehensible. Right, right. So I believe there is one other American now on the list, Daniel Levin Becker. Does Roundabout elevate you to Olipo membership? Um, I think that's for others to decide. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, w- I would love Olipo membership. And uh, I suppose it's, it, you know, in my work, uh, every project has to be different from the one that precedes it. And so this is obviously the most steeped in the spirit of the Alipo of all the books that I've written. And, you know, I haven't returned to this thematically or stylistically, so I may I may not be able to get full membership for that reason. <laughs> or do you have to do more than one book to be a member? No, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, there's there's some really committed uh, Olipo folks out there, and I really admire what they do. But for, uh, for me, every every book has to be a departure. It has to be something different. Well, the, the book has, talking of the references, the book has lots of clever references and hidden mm-hmm. allusions. And there were times when I knew you were being brilliant, mm-hmm. but... I wasn't clever or literate enough to get it. And sometimes that made me feel a little alienated. Mm-hmm. Was that a danger that you were content to contend with? Well, I, so I think of them like Easter eggs, right? You know, in like a popular movie in that some people are going to pick up on them and some people aren't, but they're they're not front and center. They're not necessary to understand the story. So there's a, you know, a character mentions that Ava Delan is an anagram. If somebody wants to go and do a, the anagram of, uh, of Ava Delan, they can, but you know, it's not necessary to understanding the story or appreciating the story. So uh, that's the sort of the spirit of it is, you know, yes, there are some kind of literary inside jokes and things like that, but they're not the things that propel the plot. I wanted kind of footnotes because I wanted to be part of the club of like, oh, that was really yeah, fun yeah. And, and exciting and, and clever. Yeah, and I would yeah. just be like, oh, I feel a bit dull and I don't, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Right, right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in, in some ways um, it can be fun to put in fodder for anybody who wants to go a little bit deeper. And um, it's, uh, it, you know, I, I hope it's not hinged on those things in order to get appreciation. But sometimes the the conversations that one has afterwards with other people that have read a book are as valuable as the experience of just turning the pages and reading from cover to cover. Right. I haven't yeah. worked out the anagram of Ovid Delany. I forgot about that bit. Right, right. <laughs> so so I, was waiting, I, was waiting for you, I was waiting for you to tell me in the <laughs> <Okay>. book. <laughs> yeah, you can give it away. All right, null and void. Null and void, okay. Yes, yeah. I was thinking laudanum or some kind of drug, but I'm like, okay, okay null yeah, and void. Yeah. I'm like, no, it has another V in it. <laughs> I think the, the bit that seems the most Alice in Wonderland to me is mm-hmm. is the trial. Yeah, um, yeah. When Ovid stands trial, and I keep expecting the Queen of Hearts to run in and right. yell, you know, off with his head. 
<laughs> that yeah. was an interesting a component because I mean you're, you're writing a novel, but then there's a, yeah. there's a play in the middle of it. Yeah, this the the, the hybridity of it was really um, also a part of the constraint that I knew I wanted to have a poem and a play, and I'm not a poet, so the poem is written by a character who is also not a good poet. It's not it doesn't have any pretensions to be a good poem, but the uh, there is a yeah complete play within the book on um, uh, book four and um, it's Ovid's trial so it's the, uh, the, the, the the trial story in which he's accused of anticipatory plagiarism and yeah that that I, I think afforded a few moments that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do in uh, the pace of it you know when you're reading dialogue 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 as you do in a play you know there's it's a, a pace that you can't achieve as well in regular prose did you have people act it out I haven't had people act it out but yeah that would be interesting to see yeah you know full you know costume and everything I don't know um, <laughs> but no I haven't done it I noticed that uh, George Perec followed up his novel written with Anthony with a novella which excluded all vowels except E. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but you, do you feel like you're done with constraint writing now, or is it something that you might return to I, I, down I, the line? I have, uh, I have actually written... The, so Ovid is, is an author, right? And Ovid has written a book. And I've written Ovid's book, which is written like Parekh's uh, novella or, or short piece without all, letter, all vowels except for the letter E. So I do have that. But I decided not to publish it. I was going to be between third book and book four, but I decided to omit it because I think it works better as a uh, something that the reader can imagine rather than uh, something explicit. So no, no. So I have written it and may publish it elsewhere, <laughs> but uh, not as a part of Roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It is hilarious. Thank you. My second night guest today has been Fong Gwyn, University of Missouri professor and Miller Family Endowed Chair of Writing and author of a new lipogrammatic novel, Roundabout. The book is available for purchase at local bookstores, as are his other books, The Adventures of Joe Harper and his story collections, Pages from the Textbook of Alternate History and Memory Sickness. Thank you so much, Fong. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. The 41st Paper in Particular National Art Show has its opening reception at the Columbia College Galleries this afternoon from 5 till 7. This is a free event and open to all. The MU Chancellor's Arts Showcase takes place at the Missouri Theatre tonight at 7pm, featuring a variety of works from across the university's arts genres. Tickets are $7 for that show. At Columbia Entertainment Company, the musical comedy Legally Blonde is in its final week Weekend. And barring returns, the show is sold out for the third weekend in a row. Congratulations, CEC. If you want to try for returns, showtime is 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there's a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. In Jefferson City, Capital City Productions presents the rescheduled musical I Do, I Do. The two-person show is a fundraiser for Capital City Productions' new home, but as their new home is still being worked on, this production will be held at the Capitol Mall's Woodcrest Chapel. Evening showtime tonight and tomorrow is 7.30, plus there is a 1pm matinee performance tomorrow and tickets for that are $15. Tomorrow afternoon there is a Louder Than a Bomb youth open mic event at Skylock Bookshop from 4 till 5.30. Relevant Youth's second annual Black Alchemy Showcase is at the vault on the lower floor of the Tiger Hotel from 6 till 10 on Saturday and features work by local black creatives including rappers, graphic designers, painters, fashion designers and spoken word artists. 
The National Symphony Orchestra of Ukraine, noted as one of the finest symphony orchestras in Eastern Europe, is at Jesse Hall tomorrow night at 7pm as part of the University Concert Series. Tickets cost from $20. At Talking Horse Theatre, improv siblings, the stable boys and the ponies bring their long and short form improv together for their Leap Day crossover show. Tickets are $15 and you are advised to get them in advance. At the Blue Note on Saturday night, Violet and the Undercurrents play a tribute concert to the Cranberries. The show starts at 9 p.m. And at Rose Musical, it's the Cash Bash 2020 with the Harms Family Band, Rose Ridge and Jordan Thomas, saluting the work of Johnny Cash on what would be his 87th birthday. That show starts at 8pm and tickets $8. Sunday afternoon, the Columbia Civic Orchestra will perform music of the stage and screen with the vocal talents of Simone Sparks and Marcus Jarrell Ruff at the Missouri Theatre at 3.30. The event will also feature an artistic collaboration with Locust Street Expressive Arts Elementary School. And this is a free event. Sunday evening, there is a special We Always Swing Jazz Series 25th Anniversary Double Bill featuring the Joey Di Francesco Trio and Trinidad's Etienne Charles Creole Soul, and that's at the Blue Note. That event gets underway at 6pm with tickets available from $20. And Sunday evening at 7.30, the Millie Project performed their true account of Millie Sawyers, an enslaved woman who became free, and that's at Broadway Christian Church. Skipping ahead to next Thursday, this month's first Thursday book discussion at the Daniel Boone Regional Library is a chance to discuss books about women's suffrage in celebration of the passing of the 19th Amendment 100 years ago. You can join that discussion from 12 till 1. At Rose Music Hall, Arkansas and Grassfed play a double bill kicking off at 8pm. And next Thursday is the first official day of this year's True False Film Fest, which starts its full weekend of documentary films with the Jubilee opening reception at the Missouri Theatre and an evening of films and music events at multiple venues around town. You can check out the full film and music schedule at truefalse.org. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. And a big thank you, too, to all the people who made donations during our Pledge Drive Week and those special people who made donations during Speaking of the Arts last week. Thank you so very much. Mike and I will be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curson. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.